film runs through our veins and continuously makes us interact with it. I'm your host, Edward Frumpkin, and this is Real Print. In this episode, video artist Brady McDougall explained how images operate in the marketplace economy, his experiences making his thesis film Alone With You, and working as a production assistant on Bisbee 17 and Brewmaster. Finally, in today's concluding thought, I share my reluctance in avoiding to publish written interview articles on Real Print's website before publishing my published interview with Children of the Mist director DM Holly. Some portions are recorded on Zoom, so bear that in mind when you hear the audio and enjoy the show. Hi Brady, thank you for coming to Real Print today. Yeah, no problem. It's good to see you, Eddie. How um, you doing? Yeah, you are as you're currently in the art and video MFA program at Syracuse and want to go all the way back with what's your first film memory? Okay, cool. Hmm, let's see. My first film memory, uh would probably be like watching some animated Disney short or something like the Aristocats uh, when I was a young kid. Uh, I would just always be watching those at home when I was with my family, like days when I was sick. I just remember like movies always being on the TV. But there was a kind of disconnect between um, like enjoying films and like realizing that making films was something that I wanted to do for a long time, um, like all the way until my first year in college, I had no clue uh, really what direction I would be going like career wise. Um, I was always just moving through school kind of like doing what was needed, but not really finding that much enjoyment in it. Um, But once I started at the University of Missouri, back in 2015, I took a film studies class and a digital storytelling class. And I just started to find that I really enjoyed um, discussing films and then also the process of uh, having this creative outlet and like making something was really cool. And I just decided that I was going to stick with it and pursue filmmaking. Um, And that was kind of how I got started. So what, how, how do you describe the difference between the exciting of watching films and uh, the realization of uh, making them? Sure. So I guess like before being involved in like filmmaking, you don't really think as much about everything that goes into the making. But once you have started to kind of look behind the curtain, you can't help but start to be a little bit more nitpicky and uh, there's more attention to detail and like the actual production, thinking about uh, how they decided to do it and oftentimes questioning uh, if it's working for you or not. So I think that was like a big transition of just like watching for pure enjoyment and then starting to watch to like learn and starting to think about, especially uh, coming from the angle of being a producer or having an interest in producing, uh, thinking about how I might have done something uh, a bit differently. 
okay, um, I really enjoy how you bring that in. And does that change the excitement of watching films when you have been actively producing some student films? Yeah, I'd say that it does. Um, it's hard to be, well, you know, I want to complicate this because I think that it, it can take away from the enjoyment because you're sitting there um, maybe being a bit nitpicky and it can be hard to just like give up your, um, like, you know, just get rid of your belief that this is not a reality that this is actually, you know, that this is something that's constructed. So when a film does get you into that place where you've kind of been washed away, like you can't help but just get sucked into the film, that I think becomes an even more special experience because you know that you're watching something that is like a powerful film. There's like some really great magic that's just completely removed you from your day-to-day -day reality and brought you somewhere different you're observing somebody else's story. Um, and hopefully, I think that that experience can become more powerful, but when it doesn't achieve that, it can be kind of a letdown because you know what cinema is capable of, you, you know like what the best is and you also aspire to that. Um, so when you see a movie that doesn't quite reach that peak, it can be disappointing. Now, that being said, I have started to find a lot more enjoyment and just like really leaning into being nitpicky on films. And I think that some people find this annoying, but I have friends that will just sit together and like watch um, like certain series of films. Like for example, like Fast and Furious. I watched the whole Fast and Furious series and watched as it just kind of unraveled into like more increasingly ridiculous uh, plot points. And so, uh, yeah, it's, there's multiple sides to this coin. <laughs> There's, it can be less enjoyable, more enjoyable, but for the things that like tend to be less enjoyable, I just like to lean into it. I agree with everything you just said. And it's very hard to just hold, keep Quaker shut up while I speak. Yeah, yeah. But I do want to ask about um, how does the excitement of watching them creates the excitement of making them when it comes to either frames alone with you or flashback. Let's see. So thinking back to some of my films from undergrad, there was, let's see, probably like less thought put into those than if I was making some, if I was going to be making those now. Uh, during undergrad, I was really making things very intuitively, just like based on what felt right. And I think that that is something that can be very valuable when you're first starting out to just make stuff. Um, I'm noticing that in the students that I'm um, teaching now that it's just like good to make work when you're young and inexperienced, you need to get experience and just like get out there and make stuff. And I think a lot of that does kind of um, get fed by the general excitement of like seeing good movies and then wanting to make like cool movies. Um, but eventually you 
I think you have to start to complicate um, what you're making and it needs to kind of go to another level where you're thinking about why am I making what I'm making? Um, who am I making it for? And like, what am I trying to say through my film? Um, so yeah, it still is exciting when you're on a set and things start to come together. Uh, because it's so hard to do that. Like even on a student film set, I think especially on a student film set where you're working with a lot less resources, you're not working with people that are necessarily professionals in their role. You don't have, a, you probably don't have a big budget. Your locations are not going to look like stellar. Um, to fill up the locations that you do have becomes more difficult. You, you end up falling into a lot of the same tropes that other students have done before because we all have the same limitation or students have a lot of the same limitations and come up with a lot of the same solutions. So it gets really challenging to be creative um, to the point where you're doing something that's kind of like unique and still exciting and then intellect intellectually uh, rigorous as well. Um, but yeah, I don't know exactly where I'm going with that, but yeah, it can, it, when it, when it does work, when it all comes together, it's very exciting. And when you were saying that you're making things with intuitive feelings, does it come with approaching to the type of stories you want to make and other inspirations to tell these stories? I think so, because when something's intuitive, it kind of comes from uh, inside you without too much force. And when you start to overthink things, um, I think you're kind of, you can be restricting that, that magic that just comes when you're in the zone and things are kind of happening somewhat effortlessly, like you're flowing. Um, it's hard though with film because it's such a process to stay in the zone, so to speak. Um, there's so many steps that need to occur before you get to the point that you're actually filming. And then once you even have your footage, there's a lot more that happens that's like still part of a process. So to be operating like fluidly within the bounds of something that is actually quite rigid. I think that the film production process can be quite rigid. Um, like you can put it out on paper and you're saying, all right, like I need to go from this step to this step, to this step, to this step, to this step. Now we're filming and then, okay, I need to upload my footage. We're cataloging it. We are then starting to edit. And then like, there's 15 steps after that. Um, how do you maintain just like a flow and, that to me has been something interesting to think about. And as I've kind of transitioned from um, like short filmmaking into um, art video, I've noticed that it feels a little easier for me to do, to like kind of stay with my intuition. Um, but like I said, I'm trying to challenge that. So I'm trying to come from a point of like it feels intuitive I'm doing the things that interest me but also I am uh, using some kind of theoretical basis 
um, and then pairing those two. And then through that, that's where I'm trying to make my work right now. Um, and I'm still figuring out like what exactly that means. I think that is quite abstract, um, you know, just saying, okay, I know that I want things to be intuitive, but I also want them to be theoretically informed. Okay, well, what theory and like, what are you, what are you gonna make work about? I'm still figuring that out, but I feel like I'm starting to um, find my interests and I know that like video is my medium, um, even if it's not necessarily filmmaking. Not to say that I won't be back or that I won't be doing filmmaking at all, but right now I'm kind of starting to steer in a new direction being in the art video program here at Syracuse. Yeah, I agree with everything you said here. And I also want to ask, like, while still talking about your undergrad work, about, mm -hmm. um, like, with some of your films, notably Art Thoughts in Dreams and Flashback, you have a mixture of still photos and uh, split screens. But influence that approach sure so both of those films like you said are a mix of mediums um they are video that i shot like on cinema cameras photos that i've just taken on my personal dslr videos from my phone um mixture of for our thoughts on dreams interviews with friends uh, with flashback, I was using mostly, uh, notes or poems that I had written down in various journals over the course of a couple of years and then, um, narrated those. But I think that my interest in mixing all of this kind of comes from the fact that I have a mixed background. It wasn't something that I thought too much about as I was making it, as I was mixing it all up, but I was just using what I had at my disposal. And that was experience with film, experience with documentary, and um, my interest in photography at the time, which started out mostly as a, a hobby, just something that I was doing uh, as like a creative outlet that I wasn't thinking too much about, um, but has developed into like much more of an interest and I think a big part of my practice. So coming from these angles, it felt like I was trying to kind of like work out what to do with my archive of media. You know, I have all these various um, works and I was looking for a way to um, share them at once. And I think that's what's really cool about uh, video or film is that it can be a medium to share any kind of art really. Like you can film a painting you can film a photo, you can film a performance, uh, you can film people doing pretty much any type of art. And so that frame that you're using to put around something um, doesn't necessarily care what's in it. That's where like you as the artist or you as the filmmaker comes in and decides like, how am I going to fill up this frame? What am I trying to say through this frame? And for me, for my, for those older works that we're discussing, um, it was me, I think, trying to like figure out how to contextualize my work 
and like bring it together. So flashback is um, like my first like short film, which I would call like more like an experimental documentary um, that I was, that was like the synthesis that I had been looking for. Um, and since that, I've been kind of using that as a like framework to make work. Um, our thoughts on dream was our thoughts on dreams was uh, an evolution from that that was bringing in more of the interview um, lens, a documentary lens, and still keeping it um, experimental and I think fresh. And now I'm continuing to kind of explore that vein of uh, media making here at school. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you had a lot of footage and photos from past sources. And when did you know that you would put them into these works? Hmm. It wasn't something that was like so thought out. I wasn't like, I'm making this for this work. Um, it was more just making to make. Um, you know, like collecting. I think that's something that, especially with like our phones being as good as they are as they are now at photo photographing and videoing. Um, I just will film and photo things that interest me, that catch my eye, and not necessarily know like what they're for. They're more like visual notes. And then when I'm making. It's just like when I'm jotting down notes or if I'm jotting down a poem or a thought, I don't necessarily think like, oh, like this is something I'll come back to and use. But when I'm starting to make work, I start to reflect. I start to go back through my catalogs, my archives of both written notes and visual notes. And I start to think like, how could these things be paired? Um, so that process to me is like more in the moment. Um, now, that being said, I have been, or I made a new work last fall, in the fall, called Scroll, that uses a, pretty much all of the photos that I've taken and edited on my DSLR since the start of COVID. And I put each photo in a sequence on, on in Premiere for one frame and then I have another version where each photo is up for two frames so it's about um 3400 3400 photos and they just flash by like almost like imperceptibly fast you don't have enough time to perceive each photo within the context of just that photo it starts to be in reference to what comes before and after it and um that for me, like thinking through that process, like I had been thinking, what am I going to do with all these photos I've been taking? Like, it's too much to share on Instagram and contextualize. Like often media that gets made is like, if you're just making something um, without like photographs for me, without them having context, it's just kind of like candy, you know, like it's just, it's like, you look at it, it looks nice, but um, often it's just for the, it's purely aesthetic. It's not like trying to say anything deeper than like this, 
looks beautiful, at least within the context of social media. I find that to be the case quite often. And so I was thinking about that. If I was making all of these photos just for the context of Instagram, then there's like not really much context at all. And so it becomes about this idea of context collapse and um, the absence of information like being tied to something like concrete or like even the idea that we we even care about context anymore because i think that the lack of contextualization is um, feeding a lot of our larger systemic problems and societal problems but anyway um i was saying i was talking about this because i did start to photograph for this project uh, specifically thinking okay well when i photograph i know that if i photograph things like um, in sequence, like as I'm shooting, if I'm, if I'm spinning around a room and I photograph like 10 times and I, then when I put that into Premiere, it's going to look a lot more like I'm spinning around the room and you get a better sense of that space. But if I'm photographing like here and then I'm photographing in South Dakota and then I'm photographing in uh, Wyoming and I put those three photos next to each other, then there's going to be a lot more of a gap. Like there's a lot less contextualization in those gaps. So I started to eventually photograph um, knowing that I was going to be putting them in a sequence. So later in this piece scroll, you get a lot more of a sense of space. And um, I think that I will be keeping that in mind for future product, future projects where I'm using like photo sequencing within video. Um, I am starting to kind of develop like a style there, but I still very much shoot um, like photo and video on my phone in like a lot more of a free form way where it's, it's just more like notes, like I was saying earlier. Thank you for that amazing breakdown. I didn't expect social media to be even discussed. But... Yeah, no problem. It's definitely, it's something I'm thinking about uh, a lot because of how much attention it gets. Um, how, we're in uh, an attention economy, not an information economy. And so it's, I think it's important to understand that as, a, as somebody that is um, subjected to that and um, very much involved in that economy, um, knowing that a lot of our friends use these platforms, that our parents use these platforms, to me, it's important to uh, think about and to examine uh, why, why, why we're so interested in this. Like, what is it doing to us as individuals, but also what kinds of trends is it feeding into um, on a larger scale? So film um, or as media makers, I think that it's kind of, it's partially our responsibility to have that in mind, that we're making work that we're putting into this economy of images and media and what's it doing to people like what are we doing to people as filmmakers what are we doing to people as photographers documentarians documentarians um artists in general um what's what's the point of making the work we're making it's something that i'm thinking a lot about especially uh within the context of also uh, climate change because things are happening very rapidly and a lot of media is I think a distraction so 
if we're just making things to distract people from what's going on outside of the frame, outside of the movie theater, outside of their home, then we become complicit in um, these systems that are trying to keep people kind of just, you know, entertained, um, fed, and kind of dumb and distracted. And that's not something that I want to just be um, replicating and like be partaking in without uh, questioning it and critiquing it and thinking about how can I uh, address that? How can I maybe try to get other people to think about it as well? Because it's a concern for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for bringing those concerns up. And yeah. I do, I love the DP work they did in Brandon Haskell's Trapped, where like some of the things I love the most was backlighting Zach Cusick, the actor who played the cop. And yeah, disappearing the mirror. Like, how did you pull these techniques off? Well, I appreciate it. I will say that working with Brandon, who is uh, an extremely talented DP himself, was very helpful to me um, because that wasn't a role that I had really filled very often. So I have to say that a lot of the work that I did was through partnering with him. And I don't take that much credit for how that film ultimately ended up looking. Um, but it was, that was a film where as we were making it, I was really excited just because I could tell that it looked like it looked stunning. And um, it was just, it was like kind of made on the fly um, in one afternoon and evening. And yeah, that, that kind of project is so fun to me where you just like are with a couple of friends on one location. It's not too stressful and you just get to kind of play around and try and make something really cool looking. Um, the film or the, uh, the mirror shot, that was mostly post-production and masking, I believe. Um, but also we were thinking about how we can make that easier. So like where the camera would be placed, where the lights would be placed so that when it got to post and when it got to editing, that it would be easier to make those effects happen. Yeah, thank you for revealing some of that. And also, I'm not sure if this is a you or Brandon question with that movie. Like how did Brandon know which that you wanted to have in the script or do you just figure out some time in post? I think that's more of a question for Brandon. Um, I think he probably was thinking about it ahead of time and might've had that in mind, but it also very well could have been something that happened like through just some experimentation of what looks and feels right while he was in post. So I would, if you get a chance to chat with him, I would, bring that up uh, this makes me want to leave with alone with you and uh, explain to people what is alone with you a film that got to play a few film festivals yeah sure thing uh so alone with you was my thesis film for the film studies um degree that i did at the university of missouri 
Uh, it was a film about artificial intelligence and augmented reality that was kind of packed into a pair of contact lenses. Um, and the way that one woman used this technology to kind of bury herself, like remove herself from society and create a partner with, create a partner for herself using these contact lenses that you could put in and pretty much construct your reality based on your desires. Um, and they were informed by um, artificial intelligence that was scrolling the internet, checking social media. It was able to create profiles of people that you could interact with based on their public profiles. Um, so she ended up making uh, and interacting with this guy that was based on her neighbor that she had a crush on. Um, but that film was kind of made when I was really thinking like, what should I make my film about? And I still had a lot of the same concerns then, like how is technology influencing individuals? How is technology influencing culture? Um, and so I was thinking that as like a guy that I, at the time I was feeling kind of isolated and lonely, I was thinking like, what, would um, like the next step of virtual reality be um, and how would that be augmenting like physical reality which is very much um, like a contemporary question it's still a concern and I think it's becoming uh, further like it's becoming a bigger concern for me just as we're seeing some of the tech developments that are happening um, within the last couple of months with the metaverse and Facebook changing their name to meta. Um, but also there's been a number of um, like hardware devices that are being discussed that would do kind of what I explored in my film, which is starting to change the way that we perceive reality, like as we move through physical reality, not actually being like, some um like in some cloud reality but how how are we changing our physical reality by like overlaying stuff onto it to me it's interesting because it kind of just skips over the problems that we're having with this physical reality of like the fact that it's changing really dramatically and becoming increasingly uninhabitable um but if we can make it look like it's not becoming uninhabitable and if we can kind of put something in front of ourselves that filters reality so that it's pleasant and like just easy to live within i think that seems like a really good solution to like from the perspective of the extremely wealthy who would rather not have um the working class the lower class, the middle class, like realize we are really all have the same interests in like increasing our longevity and like our ability to continue living here. Um, instead, let's just make them think it's okay. But anyway, so yeah, those were kind of my concerns that were prompting this film. And that is like ultimately what the film is about and kind of how I see it in conversation with some of these more contemporary 
concerns. Thank you for bringing that up. And that I know that you have done more with video art now than like traditional filmmaking, fiction or nonfiction. Like you got a chance to be a PA on Sundance's Bisbee 17 and South by's Real Master. What were those experiences like? Sure. So working on Bisbee 17 was really a treat for me. Um, it was an experience that I was able to get through um, just an opportunity that I applied for at the University of Missouri. And yeah, I was really fortunate. I got to go, I got flown out to work on Bisbee, out in Bisbee, Arizona um, in the summer of 2017. Uh, so yeah, I was there for a week and it was really uh, a grind. We were up early and out late, but it was so much fun to uh, be able to see how this documentary like came into existence. It was really an amazing collaboration between um, the filmmakers, the director, Robert Green, and the whole town of Bisbee who came out to support the production by um, essentially filling the roles of people that had existed within the same space a hundred years prior. Um, and so, yeah, being on the set of Bisbee kind of actually led to my other experience of working on Brewmaster, which happened while I was a um, production and development intern or fourth row films, the company that had produced Bisbee 17. Um, so I was working for, I was working for fourth row films during the next summer of 2018 in New York city. And week to week, there were various responsibilities that were asked of the interns, but uh, there were a couple of opportunities where I was able to um, help shoot some additional footage and go out and shoot some interviews that um, ended up in the film or were used. And so, yeah, that one was a little bit less like hands-on and more like supplementary to what had already been created for that film uh, for Brewmaster, but was still also a very valuable experience um, to be able to see um, or to contribute to documentaries that were at um, varying stages through the production process. It was all extremely valuable experience. Yeah, like I was happy that you got to have an on-set and in-person first um, production development internship with Fourth Row. While for me it was remote, like I was able to search up archive houses, uh, search up archival materials that will end up being in uh, Bernstein's wall and that even though it's not, I don't know if I could say it was as exciting as it was because of the inconsistent communicative meetings with Douglas and Susan but I did enjoy just the, the steadiness they have to have 24 7 because like, I don't know how often of the tasks will come like it's just I don't know what's coming into as much. Yeah, that's interesting. I have not 
had to do that much remote work. Um, it's kind of, I guess, like just fortunate timing on my part, graduating in 2019 um, from undergrad. And then just when I started graduate school, it was after most people were vaccinated and like to come to school uh, with a couple of exemptions, you had to be vaccinated. So stuff hasn't been remote for me, but it is interesting to hear from you about, um, you know, the differences that you observed having to having done your internship online and remote, as opposed to what it might have been like being there in person. Um, it's for sure a different experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I do, like, you've got done both things with the Robert Greene directed film and the Douglas Corolla directed film. Mm -hmm. What are the similarities and differences you see in them directing? Hmm. Work that I did with both of them, I felt like I actually saw more of Doug directing, even though it was not very much. Um, just because when I was working with Robert, he was in the midst of like working with so many other people. And I was just really running all over the place, like trying to like manage crowds, get people to sign stuff, like just running back and forth between the actual set and taking like SD cards to um, the editing bay. I wasn't really observing him as much. Um, but with Doug, Doug is, Doug is always, um, Doug's got Doug's way, which is cool because when you're working with him, you can really start to pick that up from him. Um, like a couple things that I remember from him is like honey, not vinegar. So he always has the approach that you should be a yes man, that you should be um, making things happen, but like that you're happy to make it happen. Because the moment that you start to um, be a little bit of sour, people pick up on it and they remember as well. And so his perspective and what he passes on to and through the people that he works with is that you should like always be trying to make things happen and be trying to make it happen in a pleasant way, like with a smile and like a sweet, not sour uh, kind of way. And so, I don't know, I think that dog really passes a philosophy when you're working with him. And when I've worked with Robert, I just haven't been as close. So I haven't had the opportunity to necessarily um, pick up on that, like watching him direct, direct. That being said though, I did actually take a class with Robert during undergrad that was documentary production. And it was during the course of a semester making a documentary. And that was really cool because he was essentially coaching us through the process of making a documentary. So I think that even though he wasn't directing the documentary so much, he was kind of directing behind the scenes of the documentary. Um, and that was a valuable experience for sure, because he was able to give advice on like pretty much every like step of the process and 
that film was about roller derby and it's still kind of like we shot all this amazing footage of the Columbia roller derby team and then it got down to the end of the semester and we only really got through the rough cut stage of editing and it kind of just stopped there so that's something I'm considering working on I have all the footage I have the premiere files it just seems like a um, huge task to undertake but one that I've been sitting on for a couple of years and constantly considering like I should go back to that I should go back to that um so yeah this conversation is kind of reminding me that I should go back to that (laughs) Yeah, how long is the rough cut? 26 minutes, I believe. Okay, it's not that. I thought it was going to be like a feature length, like maybe 90 minutes. Nah, it's not. But we have, I don't know how many hours of footage we had. We always had like two to three cameras running. And we went to, we went to a couple of their, a bunch of their practices. We were following a couple of people uh outside of practice and then we had these things that are called bouts which are their actual competitions where they bring in another uh, roller derby team and compete so we have tens maybe 100 hours or so or so of footage but it's not i know that's not that's not actually huge when it comes to filming a documentary but it's a it's one of those things that it feels intimidating, but I'm sure once I started doing it, I'd be like, this is cool. Like, I'm, I'm happy that I'm working on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had to go back a little earlier saying that with, I did see that in Douglas's uh, personality with the yes attitude, like during the orientation one other meeting that I had with them, and that I was in the, a scene in procession, so... I did get to see some of Robert directing and really enjoy how like quick and not too fast as like I was there for all but the last three or four of my time in a cafeteria. But once you're in the scene, you literally see like the magic with the flags and then uh, the go. And I took that set maybe more professional than like some students says because I know that he already done Sundance Berlin now and now a Netflix doc so there was a different anticipation with his shit and Mizzou shit oh of course I and I think something that's cool that definitely needs to be mentioned about Robert is that his films are this is some philosophy I took away from him that I will always remember, which is complicating this idea of film and documentary as a binary. It's not a binary at all. It's like many other things that are thought of as binary, it's a spectrum. And your documentary film can fall anywhere on that spectrum. And he takes full advantage of that in his films by mixing in um, scenes of reenactments, often musical components, and like that performative element is probably something that differentiates him as a uh, doc filmmaker when it comes to directing as opposed to uh, people that don't 
bring in those aspects because there is a lot more uh, actual like quote unquote directing that occurs when you're trying to get people to act um, as opposed to just like I think it's still a performance documentary is still a performance even when you're just filming somebody doing something they do anyway when you introduce a camera things get changed you know people know they're being perceived and thus they have to perform for the camera um but yeah it's cool he did change what the documentary was to me when i saw busy 17 at true false because i went there because mainly of you i did not know who bella was at the time adam or bennett and Kalani and jared and that I want to support Navy faculty. And I got to ask Robert a question about anachronisms in that movie, as well there was when I rewatched Cake Place or Scene, and then a year later from this interaction with him. And it was, he laughed that it was me that I asked out of all people because I did not know what a documentary could be until I saw his work before I was, we met like, more in person once when I was in a doctor program. Yeah, that's really cool. I didn't realize that um, you would just come to that screening for me, but I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, I mean, that screening at True False was really special to me. Um, I have always been really appreciative of the opportunities that I got, that I've continued to uh, receive through the experience I had working on that film set. I don't think that I would have been able to intern in New York if I hadn't worked on that film set. Um, it's always something that I'm able to talk about when I'm talking with other filmmakers and artists. Um, and yeah, just to be a part of something like that is really valuable experience because when you've done it professionally and then you, you can start to see the differences, like you said, between uh, like a, professional film set and something like a student film set and you see that you see the gap and you can start to address the gap so experiences where you are able to kind of leapfrog much further than you've ever been before and then to be able to turn around and say to the people um, that are still working in these other modes that they can update the way that they're operating and be much closer to this thing that like people are aspiring uh, to replicate, you know, like a professional film set or a professional documentary. Like there's an idea, there's ideas of like what these things are. And often people are trying to um, aim for this idea and like fulfill that idea. And when you've seen how that happens, like how that creation happens, you are able to, take that information and use it for yourself. But also what I think is really important, and this is partially why I was really interested in producing, was to share that information and to try and uh, help bring up the people around you to do things um, better or to, yeah, to do things in like this new way of operating. That's what I think is cool about filmmaking is that it's, uh, it's a team effort. And that was one of the biggest things that I think elevated filmmaking for me and my own work is starting to work with other people that um, 
had their areas of interest and like trusting them to do that part, freeing me up to focus on the things that I wanted to be focusing on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And uh, um, as I sometimes grapple with, I should maybe go to grad school or not for any form of media making, um, what are the benefits of going to grad school? For sure. Hmm, it's always a tough question because I think that it's really um, a personal decision and you have to kind of look at what you have going for you and like what experiences are you getting without more school or like why would you want to go back to school? My, I guess I'll talk about my personal motivations and kind of what led me to decide to do grad school. And then I can talk a bit more about um, what, like why it could be a good decision for some people and not for others. So for myself, I was kind of looking at the, uh, just the landscape of potentially, or what it would be like, what were my options? So when I was making or considering this decision, it was mm, late 2020 and I late 2020, early 2021. So COVID was like full blown going hard. I wasn't sure if there would be vaccines um, or what would be going on over the next couple of years. And I knew that if I went with my original plan out of undergrad and saved up some money and then moved to Los Angeles, that I was probably going to be starting out being like a COVID PA, cleaning stuff, making sure people were vaccinated and um, working on a lot of other people's projects for long hours and like all right pay. So looking at that, I wasn't that attracted by that prospect, um, especially not knowing what was going on with COVID. So I thought that more school could be an option for me because it's a commitment that lasts like two to three years for me. My program is a three-year program. So I thought that maybe I would go to school. COVID would kind of simmer down. I would come out to a um, more stable um, filmmaking environment and just, I think, like society in general. Now, I'm not sure that that's going to be the case now that I'm here um, and everybody's vaccinated, but yet, well, not everybody's vaccinated, but a lot, I think a lot of the people that want to be vaccinated are vaccinated and we're still having issues with COVID. Um, and just, I think a lot of instability, there's a lot of things that are in flux right now. There's a lot of uncertainty. And so in a couple of years when I get out that I think will probably still be there, especially with it being an election year and the potential for Trump to run again. I don't know who will run against him, but yeah, I don't, who knows? But anyway, I was considering, I think it'll be more stable when I get out. I think that I will go to school. I'll have the opportunity to just kind of make some work. It's really low pressure. I can be here and like study. Like I, I had this feeling that my work was just really aesthetically driven not theoretically driven. And so I'm here to learn a lot of theory, to think, 
um, and hopefully just become more intelligent and make some cool stuff. Now, that's a privileged position. Not everybody can just afford to just kind of take three years off just to make stuff, especially with the prospect of, um, I don't actually know that this degree is going to make me more money than if I had just stayed out. And I think that's true for a lot of, uh, like, I don't know, depends on where you go to film school, like if you're getting a film MFA. But I think a lot of art MFAs, you're not necessarily guaranteed to make more money as opposed to like, if you go and get like a business degree or a doctorate um, or you become a lawyer, like these things will uh, demonstrably probably make you more money afterwards. Coming in and getting an MFA, there's no guarantee. So if you're doing it to try and make more money, I would say that's probably not a good reason to get an MFA. If you're doing it because it's something that you can afford to do and you want to just kind of have some time to make work to like really think about what you're making, then those are good reasons to go. But that being said, if you're finding that you have a good balance between work and life and you're finding that you have time to like make your work, whether that be photos, documentaries, films, short films, if you're able to do that stuff on the side and you're starting to get some traction, then I don't know that you need to go to art school or to get an MFA. Um, you can find a lot of the readings that are being read in MFA programs online. Um, it's, it's really about like, do you have like, what you get from a program though is a community. Um, you know, you go to school, there's other people there that are, that have similar interests and are trying to make work. So if you don't have that around, then it could be a pro to go. I think I'm kind of rambling at this point, but it's really a personal decision and there's lots of reasons to not go, I think. But if it's right for you, you should talk to somebody in pro you should talk to people in programs and like get get a feeling for that program especially yeah do a lot of research on the programs you're interested in and um yeah just you gotta ultimately decide for yourself but you should try and be informed first yeah what are some similarities and differences between like the video programs at mizzou and the video program at syracuse well this is some inside drama here at Syracuse, they're actually closing the video art program. So strange timing for oops, strange timing for me because I just got here, but they announced in the fall about six weeks into my first semester that they would be closing the video art program after the current cohort graduates, which is my cohort. So in 2024, they're will be no more video program here. So that's a big difference between, yeah, yeah, that's a big difference between the program I'm in and the one at Mizzou is that I'm pretty sure they still have plans to maintain their digital storytelling and film and documentary programs at least through 2024. 
and probably beyond. But yeah, it's interesting being here. And like I was saying earlier, a big part of um, what you go to grad school for is the community. So I've had to kind of look outside of my direct program to find community because after this year, there's not going to be any more people coming into the program, which is certainly a bummer, uh, something that I've had to already reckon with, kind of. Uh, it's disappointing, but what I will say is that between here and, I mean, the program still exists now, so I can talk about it. It's not gone. And one of the differences I'm noticing between the program here and at Mizzou is that they start out with a really um, like theory dense first year. So like your freshman year, uh, you get enrolled into this class called Transmedia Colloquium. And that's actually a class that I've been working as a teaching instructor for or teaching assistant uh, last semester and this semester. So we have this big lecture hall. We will have visiting artists. And then we break out into discussion groups. And I lead one of these discussion groups of about 15 students. And we'll discuss what we talked about in class or what we watched. And then we'll discuss the um, reading that we did for that week. So I just don't recall my digital storytelling um, experience at Mizzou being like very theory driven. And I think that it's really valuable that here at Syracuse, they start with a lot of theory. Um, so that's a difference for sure. But what I will say is that I think Mizzou gives you the opportunity to uh, Mizzou gives you the opportunity to get onto sets and like to be around um, a lot of equipment that you can't always like get a hold of at these, at least here at Syracuse, they have a really strong reputation for their film program. I think it's like top 20 or like 25 or something like that. And so it just feels a little bit more hierarchical. Like you can't use certain cameras until like, certain years and I felt like at Mizzou it was a little bit more um, fluid like if you had friends that were a little older then you would be like getting exposure to stuff more quickly it was just about your ability to network and that's probably here that's probably true here as well it's just it's tough to compare my undergraduate experience somewhere with my graduate experience somewhere else because I don't actually really have that much uh, interactions with the undergrads or the uh, you know what they're making and working on and I am looking forward to that I am hoping to teach uh, my own class where I can kind of run the whole class and I'll see what what kind of work is getting made and be able to talk to them about what it's like to be on uh, their film sets and like how their networking is going but yeah Mizzou Maybe it's just because I was part of that community. It felt like there was more of like a core film community, whereas like here, I just don't see it as much. Um, but again, it could just be the fact that I'm more removed from that. Yeah, thank you for sharing some insiders. And I just had my jaw drop when you were saying that Syracuse is going to end the, the video and art program. Yeah, I, I saw that. 
I felt the same way. I think a lot of people here felt that people in the video art community, like more broadly felt that, um, I wasn't fully aware of actually how much history there is here in Syracuse related to video art. Um, Nam June Pike had his first like exhibition here um, for video art. There's a museum here called the Everson Museum. They have one of the earliest video art collections. Some of the most renowned video artists have uh, ties here or went to Syracuse. And really, uh, it just seems to me a bit backwards when video as a medium is more used than ever, and especially like creative ways and experimental ways to use and implement video uh, is a, a huge interest to people right now. The huge, the biggest social media platforms are either like video focused or trying to like make the shift to video. I mean, TikTok is, I think the largest right now. Um, and then Instagram is starting to prioritize their reels feature probably as much, if not more than just posting photos. So yeah, because again, it's, it's a tension economy, right? So videos, people engage with videos longer than they're engaging with just a photo. Um, but yeah, all, I'm just, I'm saying all of that because I was surprised as well by their decision and disappointed. Um, but we'll see. They, yeah, they're, they're sticking by their guns, even when we were protesting and trying to get petitions signed and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as long as you're doing the future scroll, you also work at the Urban Video Project. Um, can you explain some of the stuff you do there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as I said, I have two jobs here. One is uh, leading a discussion group as a teaching assistant, but my second job is working as a technical assistant to the director of the Lightwork Urban Video Project. Um, and so Urban Video Project, also UVP, um, but a lot of people don't recognize the acronym unless they're like really familiar. But yeah, basically the Urban Video Project is a really cool um, weekly screening that occurs, or, or I should say weekly projection that occurs on the facade of the Everson Museum. So like I said, this museum is um, historical for a number of reasons. It was made by I.M. Pei and also has had um, shows with Nam June Pike, Bill Viola, a number of other video artists. So it's cool that on the outside of this museum, every weekend, every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, from dusk until 11 p.m., we project video art onto the outside of the museum. So my job as the technical assistant is to uh, both monitor these projections, but also to help kind of create uh, a media presence for these projections or the work and to let people know uh, what's going on, when it's going on. And so I do that by making videos, which are either uh, introducing the artists, introducing the work, um, or just kind of like a recap of our screenings. 
then I also make posters and um, a number of other um, collateral for for these events that we have going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what was so far the most exciting event you've done so far with UVP? Sure. Um, last semester we had Hito Sterile come. Uh, actually, she didn't come, but she shared work through Urban Video Project. She has a piece called Strike, which is um, it's her walking up to a flat screen television with a hammer and a chisel. And then she strikes the back of the chisel against the television. And in her words, she reveals the matrix. Um, essentially, if you've ever seen a LED television broken, you get these really colorful like lines and boxes. And uh, to her, that's the matrix. And so, yeah, the piece is only 30 seconds long. So watching it on the outside of uh, the Everson, it just becomes about this person that's repeatedly attempting to break a television screen, but it always comes back anew. Um, she describes, described it as a Sisyphean, Jesus Christ. I don't know. I just butchered that, but Sisyphus, a Sisyphean attempt, basically trying to do something, but it's impossible. Um, or it just gets recreated. So all of your efforts go to waste. So it changed, it changed the uh, meaning of the piece, in her opinion. But anyway, so we had her work showing, but then we also did an interview with her. And then we did a, um, a Zoom event where we screen, screened the interview and had a Q&A. So she's really big in the video art world. Um, I believe at one point within the last five years, she was named maybe by art. Here, let me look her up real quick. But she was named as like the artist of the year or something like that. <laughs> something kind of insane to try and say. But yeah, this is taking too long. I'm not going to find it right now. But yeah, that was just really cool because she's well known and her work is cool. And my boss got to interview her, which was exciting. And then um, right now we've got a big group show going on called No Emoji for Ennui. And I've been doing a lot of work um, for that. So yeah, just staying busy. I pretty much just edit videos and make posters and monitor the projection and help out with any other random thing that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. It's cool. Um, do you have some indoor events? Because you say that the events are from dusk till 11 p.m. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the screenings happen every weekend outdoors, uh, regardless of the weather. So that is a factor here in Syracuse. Um, last week, we had a huge snowstorm on Thursday, and the projection kept going, but snow was actually had piled up to such an extent that it was blocking part of the projector. And only part of the projection was making it across the uh, courtyard onto the facade of the building. But we do have indoor events. Um, it's been complicated with COVID because not, there's still 
not everybody's traveling, not everybody's comfortable with being in a closed space within a closed space with large crowds. But, um, yeah, we sometimes do like live zoom talks or we'll have people come and, um, talk about their work. Last week we had a artist named Pixie Lau, um, and her partner come to light work. There's, there's light work and then there's light work UVP. Um, I work more specifically with Lightwork UVP, but I still support um, the people that work at Lightwork. So she came and she was supposed to do a like live performance before doing a artist talk about her work that was showing at the gallery at Lightwork. Um, but the snowstorm actually caused us to cancel it. And instead of just canceling her performance, we filmed her performing and we're going to be streaming it um within the next couple of weeks uh before she does a, a live q a so we do have people come and do stuff live and we're starting to ramp back up into that uh, as covid is becoming more endemic and you know just something that we're kind of getting used to living with mm -hmm. yeah covid makes us to do crazy adjustments especially with the weather like it's snowing right now in new york city and i wish i could talk more about it but we spoke over an hour but okay cool um before i let you go um is there a film that you want to recommend that most people do not know yes so i was thinking about this question because you told me you were going to ask it and i actually want to recommend a piece of video art instead of a film. So this is by a man named Bill Viola, who is a video artist that also went to Syracuse University. And the piece is called Ascension. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, if you search Ascension, Bill Viola, I think the one that I recommend when I looked uh, recently is maybe the fourth video. It's like seven minutes long um, so that you can see like more of the piece as opposed to just like a minute and a half clip but it is this shadowy figure that is submerged in water and the shot is in slow motion from underneath the water as they're kind of descending and sinking and you have all these bubbles kind of floating up to the surface uh there's i believe one light like a spotlight shining down into the water as this person's just slowly sinking and ascending and yeah just watching it is uh, quite meditative and uh yeah that would be the piece that i would like to recommend to viewers listeners <laughs> well that's a great um segue and differentiating in viewing the form of film or a video or a series of moving images and Thank you for coming to Real Print and have a good day. Thanks, Eddie. Really appreciate you having me. Today's concluding thought written interviews. I always like a spoken recording, video or audio more than a written interview because you get to know the sense of the room. You will hear the environs ambience when I get to speak with another person. In the video or audio recording, 
you hear a person's sincerity and compassion in their voice, whereas in reading, you need to imagine it. Also, you will get to listen to my mistakes and me being human when I interrupt the guest sometimes, or you catch my use of um and like. Due to these aspects, I initially planned not to do written interviews for real print because I worried how the written setting will reflect differences in the spoken environment. In addition, I am uncertain if the audience will understand my sense of humor, wit, and thinking when I use the second medium of writing. However, I decided to publish written interviews at the end of the day for additional content and showcase my writing skills. Also, it is a way to get filmmakers that I'm not as close to being featured on real print. Ultimately, it is working out because it is more accessible for a filmmaker to speak for 10 to 15 minutes for a written article than 50 minutes for a podcast episode. It is excellent for community outreach and to spread the word. However, you cannot just DM the featured interviewees on Instagram and Twitter willy-nilly. You need to have some form of relationship before you pursue that route. Since I had the privilege of being a part of True False and Big Sky Festivals as a screener slash filmmaker and an accredited journalist at the upcoming Hot Docs, I am fortunate enough to be near film people. Therefore, I did not necessarily have to contact them through social media. However, outside those film sectors, you have to talk to the film's press contacts and institution's press managers. For my recent interview with DM Holly of Children of the Mist, I had to do that. I was scared if Phil Lincoln Center's press manager John would take me seriously, so I sent him a few of my articles with my inquiry to let him know of my credibility, and he made it happen. I was happy to have an interview with the True Falls, Idfa, and New Director's New Films alum. I enjoyed how the conversation went with DM, but it was hard to do the final transcript because DM, who is not proficient in English, stumbled in some sentences, and I will have to do stack quotes for grammar purposes. Even though it was a great insight into the making of the film, I originally wanted to have her interview to be part of a written roundtable with Blue Island's Johnson Moon and Nanny's Nagato Jusu about what it means to be a first-time featured director, as well as asking them what does the new director's new film series mean to them. Unfortunately, Chan's chance publicist never responded to my email and Nagato's press liaison said she's not doing interviews until Nanny's wide release. Still, they said to reach out when that time comes. At least I made a good impression and I hope cold emailing will generate circulation and huge guest appearances periodically. No matter what, small or bad publicity is good publicity for the people receiving attention at the end of the day. And that's today's concluding thought. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Real Print. This episode's music includes Continuum Mutation, courtesy of Kama, and Shimmering by Rafa Orchestra, courtesy of Epidemic Sounds. This episode is co-produced and edited by Anish Katu and Edward Frumpkin. Please check out this episode's notes and links, as well as reviews, award, and seasonal predictions and essays written by yours truly at realprint.org. That is R-E-E-L print.org. 
This is Edward Frumpkin signing off.